Hi, you're joining us again and we're doing take two. Please go around the room and talk about yourselves and what it is that you do in our community. And we also have a guest from out of state. I'm Ryan Wren, I'm with the Storefront for Community Design and the Six Points Innovation Center. I'm Jonathan Kanoff, I'm a local housing advocate and researcher that does work with the Maggie Walker Community Land Trust. I'm Deron Chapis, uh, Community Engagement Manager at Lewis Kenner Botanical Garden. Marshall Brown, Architect and Director of the Princeton Center for Architecture, Urbanism and Infrastructure. All right, and today we are talking about built environments and specifically in Richmond and the way that affects our community here. I'm gonna reference a Michael Paul Williams article from 2015 where he says that Richmond segregation is by design. Do you believe that and why? Or why not? Yes. We don't just believe it, we know it. Um, there's ample evidence that it was 100% intentional and uh, the remarkable steps and really good, just creative steps that white Richmond and the power structures that Richmond had um, at the time to segregate our city and retain that segregation um, can, the evidence of that is all over and remains right in front of our eyes to this day. Oh, I don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> because it's really, the truth. Yeah, it's so, yes, um, infrastructure improvements, like say 9564, have ripped apart historically black communities, specifically Jackson Word and other areas around there, and not just like housing and communities, but actual you know, churches, businesses, etc. Can you speak about how that has affected the city and its residents? So, you know, it was, I, I think about this stuff. Um, so if we think about public infrastructure, we think about these large scale, like the built uh, infrastructure, you know, the highways and, uh, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, the buildings and things like that. Um, and I think that that's important because, I mean, it's literal, you know, it's dramatic. The, the, the highway removed 3,000 homes from Jackson Ward. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 it leveled Fulton, right? You know, it, uh, it, it, it removed Navy Hill from the conversation. So all these like urban renewal, those things like are dramatic. But I think like the undercurrent of it is something that we really don't talk about. Um, you know, what, what are the soft infrastructures, the ideas, the ideologies that, you know, uh, created these disparities? I mean, we think, uh, talk about, we talk about redlining, so there was a there was a there was a policy that was put in place that you know uh, said because you're black you cannot get financing and mortgages and you live in this area. Um, you know Brown versus the Board of Education. You know elicited you know a certain ideology where people said okay well I don't want my children to go to school with these black kids so I'm moving to suburban area and I'm putting my kids in private school here in Richmond, Virginia. So that white flight and massive resistance and things of nature, like those were soft infrastructures, but we don't really parse out how these ideologies and these thought ways, these private decisions that you, you know, uh, mentioned earlier, uh, play a role in, uh, you know, perpetuating and uh, informing these disparities. Uh, and I think that's, I think like the lessons for today are like, how do we unpack what those soft infrastructures are? I mean, um, you know, because that's what gives spirit to, you know, 
uh, the, 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 the built environment. It's these ideas, these, these uh, ways of, of thinking, ways of engaging with other human beings that, uh, you know, marginalize people or uh, create more inclusive communities. I mean, there's decisions that people make in thought ways that they, you know, live out on a day-to-day -day basis that we have to challenge. I live in Highland Park, which is a neighborhood in Richmond that embodies this whole built environment topic. It really does. I mean, uh, that neighborhood has seen everything from, you know, white flight and redlining and pacts where the neighborhood got together and said, you know, we're never going to sell to people of color. Things like that still linger on in the neighborhood in um, abandoned houses, absentee landlords. Um, there's a house uh, down the block from where I used to live in North Highland Park that's owned by the same family for almost a hundred years, but it sits there empty because they refuse to sell or rent to anyone of color. So we've got these things, they're tax delinquent. I heard you use a term, so we're not gonna call them vacant properties, right? You use a term, it's a little bit different. Available. Available, property, yes. right, available property. And so we have these properties sitting around in neighborhoods in uh, North Side and South Side in the East End that a lot of residents don't know what to do about. You know, they stand next to them and they say, well, it's blighted, it's awful, the city's not gonna do anything about it. What can be done? Are there solutions? I think the first thing that um, needs to happen that Marshall really hit home today is to flip the script and stop treating them as blighted liabilities and begin to, at the very least, imagine them as community assets. Um, we have to recognize and understand the historical context that led to their current conditions. Um, but we also have tremendous imagination and capacity within the communities in Richmond to do really good things with them. So there are many, there's, there's different ways that we can legally um, you know, take these properties um, that are owned by slumlords or owned by folks who have just not paid the taxes on them for you know, decades. Um, or who are you know, letting them fall into disrepair, so they're you know, actual dangers to the community in their current condition. Um, we can take them and the city can, um, through a judicial process, um, transfer them to a different owner. Um, so over the past 10 years, the city's been doing a lot of that through the tax delinquent auction process. The city has auctioned off since 2010 about five to 600 properties to the highest bidder in neighborhoods across the city, um, but predominantly in uh, Northside, the East End, and Southside, where the highest concentrations of these um, uh, tax delinquent available properties are. Um, but we know from, from research that uh, the owners uh, that purchase these properties at the tax auctions don't do too much with them after they buy them. Some of them will throw on a fresh coat of paint, run it out to some new folks, some of them will tear it down and build something great and new on top, um, but there's very little oversight over this, over this transfer of wealth, really, um, of these properties. Um, but there is another way. Um, state law allows for localities to transfer these tax delinquent properties directly to nonprofits. 
that's something that the city of Richmond has done um, for the past few years on a kind of incremental basis to existing community development corporations in the city. They've done a few dozen, um, and those CDCs like Habitat or Project Homes or Better Housing Coalition um, will build an affordable home on them um, and uh, sell it to a low to moderate income person. But that's very small scale, really drop in the pond of the, the, this issue and this um, it is a problem, but also an opportunity, right? So um, long story short, the Maggie Walker Community Land Trust, um, in, uh, to complement its mission to provide permanently affordable um, homes in Richmond, uh, wants to use its, um, uh, it, itself to be the land bank for the city of Richmond, um, which would uh, open up avenues for bulk amounts of this tax delinquent property to come into the land bank some of it may be reserved for the land trust as permanently affordable housing, but most of it will be transferred out to community-based, mission-driven nonprofits and entities, not just for housing, but for urban ag, open space, commercial revitalization. Really kind of depends on what we get. Um, but long story short, there is a better way. We're, we still have our training goals on. We're still trying to figure it out. Um, but there is a path forward to um, an alternative approach to taking these liabilities and turning them into assets for our neighborhoods. Gentrification is a word that's thrown around here a lot, a lot. Is there any way through policy that we can make it so that um, houses, when they're bought and flipped or whatever, can be kept at a certain price point? Um, is there anything that can be done to stop the like pushing out of black and elderly renters and homeowners from their neighborhoods? Uh, well, I don't know if you can stop houses from being sold at whatever price that, because I mean, we live in a, I mean, that's just not how it works. Um, I think that um, there are techniques, tools even, that communities can use to protect indigenous communities. Um, but I've been, I've been really trying to reconcile that since we've been talking uh, the last two days, I've sat down thinking about it, is that the nature of, of cities is that they evolve, they change. You know, uh, people live in one place and then something happens and then they move to another place. So this fluidity of communities in, um, in cities is something I think that, you know, we have a we have, we have an emotional we have an emotional connection to to place right and so we define it and say okay this is the black area but even where I live in Northside it wasn't black all the time it was at one point predominantly white right and you know uh, I think many of the neighborhoods in the city exist in the same way Jackson Ward even was at one point predominantly it was one point uh, German Irish you know Jewish and then black people moved in so you know. I think that there's a there's a deeper conversation about gentrification that I think people don't tap into, and I think it's about it's about power dynamics. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's not so much that we uh, have an affinity to the place; it's just the fact that people are displaced and don't, are are not uh, considered in terms of how their lack of power um, is is genuflected on. Um, but I really appreciate uh, this concept of future histories. Uh, uh, that you talked about earlier today um, because it inspires uh, me at least to think about
place um, in a in a in a in a non-static way that you know this is what it is now or this is what it has been but that doesn't mean that it's definitive in terms of what it will be or what it has to be like that has to or that that framework kind of you know gives way to a, a new way of thinking about space about place and cities and that we can't imagine you know strategies that consider a pu the public commons as a uh, as a, a I guess a collective imagining uh, so to speak yeah I mean the city doesn't belong to us um, even the most wealthy and powerful of us we're all just visiting um, and taking care of it for a little while it's more likely the case um, that we belong to it mm -hmm. and so you know if you're lucky and so um, yet in a democratic free market society while you're there unfortunately you know for better or for worse those who have you know because we have the system of real estate we have those who have more money are always gonna have more choice about where it is they live and how they live and because you know uh, that wealth um, capital is distributed in our uh, society in such a disproportionate way um, in such an unequal way we are trapped in a conversation about gentrification another problem is that we treat gentrification like it's a bug in the real estate system when actually it's fundamental to it the phenomena that we call gentrification is fundamental to it and so um, my 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 ambition is to try to get be try to figure out um, whatever ways we can to get beyond that because we get stuck in that conversation um, which is primarily a kind of symptom of fear of change right everyone has fear of change we're human beings we're kind of fearful creatures in many ways it's good it's helped us survive like we're scared if there's something in the woods it's <laughs> you know it's moving around and we run or we fight and so um, but but fear um, also, you know, it gets the brain and the imagination kind of shut down. And we fear that which we don't know. And so the more we can become familiar with the unknown, right, or explore the unknown or develop comfort with things like uncertainty, right, because time, think about the future, the future also represents uncertainty. And we tend to shrink away from uncertainty. And we need to learn how to embrace uncertainty. Somebody new moved in, I don't recognize them, but how do you embrace them? How do you welcome the stranger? at all levels, I think is a really important question. Um, but at the same time, if an old African-American couple or Latino couple or white couple decide that, you know, they've been living in the neighborhood long enough and they want to downsize and cash in, <laughs> right? right? I'm not right, going right, to be right, mad. Right, right, right. <laughs> certainly, 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 yeah. Is that gentrification? Maybe. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's also the world we live in. So. We have tools and techniques for managing these things, like limited equity and other kinds of tools and techniques. They're not as widespread as they probably need to be, right. um, but it's it's. I think it's 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 a function of the unequal the unequal distribution of wealth. Right. Really, that's the real thing. That's the real problem. So we'll go back to the um, point you made about distrust. Mm -hmm. Um, so many folks in Richmond are anti-development because they there's a long-held distrust here of our government and developers when they come in. But we have limited area, limited space. We have moratorium on annexation. So how do we smartly develop here 
on our available land or the, you know, the things that we already have, um, things that haven't been developed yet, how do we do that and involve the community in the decisions so that they don't feel left out or um, like their thoughts and feelings don't matter? Because right now we're having this discussion about the Coliseum. There are a lot of, and it's going to be put in, they're calling it Navy Hill for crying out loud, you know, and that's a destroyed neighborhood. So um, there's lots of feelings about that. How do we address that? I mean, it, it's it's funny. So I've been in living in the Midwest for 10 years where the cities are much bigger and you have the opposite challenge where the boundaries are, for all practical purposes, seem infinite, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, scarcity of land is not an issue. Um, and you're not dealing with a growing population, you're dealing with a population that's going down. Mm-hmm. So it's funny to come here and talk about the fact that the city is bounded mm-hmm. and growing as a problem <laughs> from the point of view of you know inhabitants because it seems to me like, oh, all right, you can, you can, you're in an advantageous place because when developers come in, you've got scarcity on your side, right? You've got a limited amount of landscape and you've got a growing population. You've got demand increasing. So my advice would just be ask for more, right? They want in, ask for more. I think that's what's happening is um, uh, people aren't asking for more, right? They're willing to, to sell out very quickly to say like, oh, we have this perception that we're desperate for development or whatever, when in, when in fact maybe scarcity is on your side and you can say, well, yeah, if you want to come here and do something, you know, you're going to have to meet certain standards in terms of quality, in terms of affordable housing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can negotiate harder, I think, than you might otherwise. This requires putting pressure, especially on politicians, because politicians tend to be in a hurry because of our election cycles, right? Sure. So they're quick to like, just like, we want to do the deal and get it in the ground before the next election comes up. So they're giving away things very fast. But I think you have to, yeah, you have to put, uh, put mechanisms in place that can help you take the longer view, be a little bit more patient, right? Because you can't negotiate when you're impatient. That's the problem, right? I hope it doesn't sound like the cop-out answer, but I really think education is part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, urban planning, architecture, real estate development, are all very professionalized, credentialed fields um, that are really sometimes only accessible by people with power and wealth to reach those. Um, and I think it is critically important for the community, however we want to define it, or basically anybody that isn't in those fields already, um, who these projects, whether it's uh, you know two or three single-family homes on a single block, or talking about completely redoing you know half of downtown in a new coliseum, to equip folks with the knowledge and the vocabulary and the tools to understand how this incredibly complicated thing works. I don't know how TIFF works. Nobody I mean, I, does. Nobody does. Nobody does. People, People are, are constantly explaining it exactly. every time. And every time there's a we story had a forum on, about TIFF, yes. on like, this, and I still don't understand what a TIFF is. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, it's just, that's an extreme example of, but a very good example of how, you know, this, how real estate development and our, you know, neoliberal institutions and uh, economy works. And so nobody is going to learn about 
the basics of urbanism and urban planning, or how architecture works, or what best practices are there, or how real estate gets done. How do you, you know, how, what does it take to just build a house and like get permits for that, and all the hoops you have to jump through? Nobody teaches you that in middle school or high school. They no, could, but they, they could. could. They could. And it has been done before. Yes. Yeah. So, and there's, I mean, there's groups in Richmond that are, you know, teaching kids about that now, but. Um, you know, I, and for God's sake, our, local, our elected officials don't always know these things anyway. So we have to teach, you know, our next generation as well as our current generation about that because it really begins to help you contextualize, um, you know, how development works in our urban environments. I think even, you know, old, old rich folks living in Northside that are mad when there's, you know, an apartment building. Uh, proposed and they're going to cut down some trees for it. <laughs> None of those people track. understand that all of their, you know, beautiful, you know, early 1900s homes that they, you know, cherish because of their backyards and their trees, those were all developed by a speculative developer that clear-cut all of Northside, laid in a grid, you know, threw up a, um, you know, a trolley to get there and built it as a white exclusionary neighborhood. Sure. And now it's and now it's a liberal progressive bastion of sure. Richmond, but it's exclusionary at the same time. And so just understanding that context and that history of our development and understanding the vocabulary of how these things get done, I think would go a long way to help the community and communities in Richmond not necessarily fight back against evil development, but have a much larger say and role in shaping it in ways that benefit, um, you know, not just the, the cream at the top that's going to, you know, extract all the tip money and go hide away and burn the Bermudas or whatever's going to happen. are listening to RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania at Local Voices Live with the ICA Summer Sessions Commonwealth Topic Built Environments on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. just have to be you know about altruism because self-interest in many ways has done some of the most wonderful things in our cities so you talk about how you educate you know the broader populace especially young people when Daniel Burnham wrote the all my examples are Chicago examples sorry uh, when he wrote the plan of Chicago which is an amazing uh, document. What um, someone had the idea to create a version of it that's called uh, Wacker, the Wacker Manual to the Guide of Chicago, to the Plan of Chicago, which is um, basically a textbook that was made for school children. It was given to every school child in the city of Chicago. It was a kind of abbreviated version of the plan, and I think it, you got it when you were in eighth grade or something. 
because they knew that you know, that was a time when a lot of, you had a lot of immigrants in the city, people who didn't speak English at all, you know, who didn't have a formal schooling education. They realized that if they were gonna convince the parents to get on board, the best way to do that was to get the, um, the, the children educated about what was in the plan. And the plan was commissioned not by the city, but by the commercial club of Chicago, the city fathers, the business people. Right? Because they realize that if we're going to run our businesses, we need to make the city attractive, and we need to have parks, we need to have museums, and we need to have you know, functioning sewer systems and all this other stuff. And so they had this idea that in order for us to benefit, we need to kind of spread it around. Right? And how do we get these ideas into the, into the, into the public over the long term? We've got to get them early. Because the things we're doing take a long time. They take 10 years, 20 years. So by the, they're just kids now. But by the time these things are coming to fruition, right, um, or actually get through, yeah. you know, or get designed, they're going to be adults. And so playing that kind of long game is really important. Um, and there are some groups out there that are kind of doing this. In Brooklyn, there's this organization called Center for Urban Pedagogy that does this kind of work. Um, they're just created in Chicago, another um, a kind of a graphic novel which tries to do a similar thing to Wacker's Manual today. But no one that I know of lately has tried it at the scale of a whole city to say, we're going to make this book, right, a kind of primer about our city, its history, the realities, its future urban planning design to kind of develop a widespread literacy at an early level, right, at an early level before people get fixed in terms of their imagination, before they get busy with their careers and everything else, um, while they're still dreaming, while they're still young, I think that would be an amazing and important project to do yeah. in places like Richmond or, or other places. Because the, the benefits of the experiment bear it out, right, have been borne out over time. There's, you know, that's one of the things I point to when I say there's a reason Chicago is like the capital of architecture and infrastructure and urban design in America, for better or for worse, like some of those things are disasters, but people go there just to see these things, right? And um, it's because, you know, these children, mostly boys, grew up to be men who had an appreciation for the built environment because they got it when, from an early age. Yeah. And there's that one plan in, in Minneapolis that's the comic book yeah. neighborhood plan that has been successful and kind of showing what some of these different processes are um, to a younger audience. And yeah. I just got to give a shout out to my colleague, Jackie Washington, at the Six Points Innovation Center, who's putting together a curriculum called City Builders yeah. for our young people here in Richmond to start to understand what urban planning is, what these decisions mean, and why they should care. So I do think that there are sprouts of hope um, that are happening right here so that that next generation here understands the background that we've been talking about today, but also has the imagination at the age they're at now yeah. to make those decisions that are going to create our future histories. Yeah. And, that, and their obligations. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they are obligations. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I do think that there are, you know, reasons to be hopeful. All right. Well, before I release you, gentlemen, back into the wide world, I have two more topics that I'd like to hit on. Um, so two other phrases that we hear thrown around um, in Richmond a lot are mixed income and mixed use developments. And a lot of people are actually really confused about that. This is actually a follower question. Can y'all describe what that actually means? 
<laughs> just a, a, a pure, you know, technical definition of, of either is, you know, mixed use is a planning term that means on a particular site area, it could be a parcel or a block or a neighborhood, that you have a mix of different land uses in there. Residential, commercial, which can be retail, business, whatever, um, you know, maybe light industrial, um, institutional, which is basically um, combing together our different land uses and way that we use land since the early 20th century, or really, you know, since the, the beginning of zoning, um, up until about you know, the last few decades, um, the trend has been to uh, disaggregate our land uses, or this idea of Euclidean zoning to say, this is where people live, this is where people shop, this is where people worship, and never shall any of those actually commingle and mix, right? That's very kind of auto-dependent philosophy where we're using cars to get around. So mixed use is just a very generalized planning term to, that means weaving together different uses of land and property together to ideally create a more sustainable, walkable, denser to some degree neighborhood. Um, mixed income on the other hand is um, you know, generally for a residential development, a residential area, that there is a, um, a non-homogenous, a heterogeneous um, mix of household incomes in there. That can mean extremely low income and slightly low income, or it can mean very high income and, you know, middle income. There's, there are technocratic terms for mixed income that depend on a particular policy or affordable housing program. Um, you know, there's no general best practice or um, ideal mix for that income. Many, di many people have very different um, ideas and um, definitions for it. So they're, they're very nebulous um, terms that um, mean different things depending on who you ask. Yeah, depending on who you ask. Like when somebody says mixed use, uh, you know, usually it's like the trigger for like, okay, you're about to be displaced. Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. Um, so, uh, use the example of Creighton Court, for example, in, in Richmond. Um, you know, they tore down uh, Armstrong High School and, you know, put this new development, this new mixed use development or uh, mixed income development. And, you know, folks that reside in Creighton are up in the air wondering whether or not they're actually going to be able to live in the new development that is being built right across the street from their housing project. Um, so earlier today we were doing the session and I was uh, nudging Ryan. I was like, yeah, you know, we're talking about uh, East Preston. And I'm like, yeah, this is a space where I'm definitely advocating for like mixed use and mixed, uh, <laughs> mixed use um, because, you know, it, it, it bespeaks to, you know, a living space where people have houses and there's businesses and it's all within the same, you know, uh, four block radius. Uh, but it's uh, in, in that space, it's, it's, it's a little different than, um, you know, an idea of, of, of a neighborhood that's being raised or at least uh, uh, torn down and folks are, uh, have to call into question, you know, where they're going to be after the fact, you know, because if the income is mixed, then apparently some of the people that, are, that don't have, you know, the income might not be in that space in the aftermath of the of the redevelopment uh, efforts. Um, so some, uh, so, so I, I, when we say mixed use and when we say mixed income, you know, it's, it, for some folks it, it could be uh, uh, seen as pejorative and uh, something that, they, that they're not included by, you know, in terms of the effort. But 
I mean, on the face value of it, all neighborhoods need to be, uh, you know, mixed. I mean, you need uh, a healthy sensibility of business in order for, you know, those hyper-local economies and sense of place to really be defined. And um, you asked the question the other day, what makes, you know, Richmond special? Um, you know, the communities now are defining themselves by the amenities and assets that they generated you know, uh, internally, right? So they've given themselves a sense of character, but that is what makes, so, you know, we talk about uh, an Austin, or we talk about uh, 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 a Charlottesville, or uh, a Williamsburg, like all of these places have unique spirit and unique uh, amenities that make them special. So if we want communities to have definition, they need to have, you know, at least the infrastructure and resources to you know, develop their own uh, identity around their businesses and, and, and the livability. And I think there's also just a point to be made that the neighborhoods that we're most nostalgic for, the neighborhoods that we hearken back to of the, these times yeah, when yeah. these things were there, they were mixed-use communities, all of them. You know, any community where you can walk down the street and visit the store here and buy your shoes here and go to church there and go to school here, those are mixed-use communities. So it isn't a term that should be feared. I understand why it is because of the context that it's been used in and certain very high profile elements uh, that have happened in our city recently. But it is the nature of everything when we're talking about preserving this core ideal from the past, which we should be doing anyway, in my opinion. Um, that's what we're talking about. Cool. And I'd like to try to end this on a super positive note. <laughs> How? Good luck. How? How about this? How do green spaces, community gardens, public art, parks, um, how do they improve a community? And how does a community, uh, also renewal of commercial spaces, you know, beautification of these streets that we have in some of our communities that were once booming commercial centers for that neighborhood. Um, how do communities uh, get involved in advocating for these type of amenities? Well, those are two different things. Uh, if you're talking about landscape, um, many of us believe that parks and open spaces of various kinds, public spaces, landscapes, civic spaces, um, inherently improve a place. Um, I'm not sure that's exactly true. I think it probably is the other way around. And in fact, uh, Jane Jacobs, everyone everyone agrees she's like the patron saint of, of urbanism. Okay, fine. Setting that aside, she actually wrote this herself, and this is one of the places where I agree with her, is that she wrote that no, it's actually the other way around. They're reflective mm -hmm. of what's around them, right? So if there is mixed use, if it is a vibrant neighborhood, if the economy is working well, that energy feeds into those spaces. Um, if not, the same thing happens. So you can look at like Central Park in Manhattan in the 70s. You were warned not to go there, right? Whereas today, New York is booming and now suddenly it's like where everybody wants to be. Same thing with Prospect Park in Brooklyn or in other places. And so um, depending on what's happening around them, these spaces, you know, art spaces, et cetera, et cetera, or civic spaces, um, they gain their life. And it's a kind of, you know, it's not necessarily one unidirectional, but it's definitely a symbiotic relationship. Um, 
So I'm not saying you shouldn't build playgrounds and things like that, but you gotta have a healthy neighborhood around it or else it just becomes a place where those negative influences just project them themselves. Um, storefronts, retail spaces, I think that's a slightly different issue. Every city around the country, I think, has a challenge there. Even some of the, you know, busiest, most vibrant commercial districts, you find a lot of empty storefronts. It has a, a lot to do with the way that, um, again, real estate works in this country. So you have owners sitting on retail space who want like way too much rent for it and they don't, they can afford to let it sit empty. So that's a problem because it affects the street, it affects the neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also, the, you know, the way we shop, the way we acquire goods, the way we do commerce, the way we do business has changed. And so our, our laws about zoning and development haven't kept up with that. So there are some places where even still today, if you're gonna build in certain neighborhoods, you gotta put housing over retail, where even when there's no demand for it. So we have to, you know, make some hard decisions about you know where we're gonna have those spaces or what we're gonna allow to happen in those spaces like can people live in those storefronts right or you know do you have incubators or do you just give that space away in some cases right um, because it provides a kind of civic benefit it puts eyes on the streets etc cetera, etc cetera. so and there are examples of where that's uh, happening you guys are in a storefront right <laughs> yeah I mean yeah exactly right I mean you know, I do green space for a living, right? The work that we do in community is uh, developing green space that the community has had, you know, uh, uh, the community has led the charge and desire uh, for the development of. Um, but th these spaces are nothing without the people that breathe spirit into it. So, I mean, on uh, the most intrinsic level, you know, uh, everything we do in cities is, is is a result of the philosophical, ideological confluence of people thinking and interacting with each other, and then boom, this is what you get as a result. Um, so, I mean, green space, I mean, on a very tactical level, yeah, we need more green infrastructure because, you know, stormwater management sure. and food access and urban heat islands and all that different type of stuff. But, um, uh, all of that is in service of the people. Yeah, right? intimate <laughs> stewardship, inhabitation, maintenance, all these other exactly, things. Right? Exactly. So, so that I mean, I think that in, in a sense, what, what I hear from that question is, what is it uh, that we need more in our? And, and I think we need healthier human-to-human -human interactions, you know, across the board and, and I mean that sounds so like granola crunchy but <laughs> but I think that you know in this in this era neighbors becoming more neighbors uh, just to speak to that point about us becoming more civically inclined um, that bespeaks to a deeper sensibility of you know I have a neighbor I have people that are in my neighborhood that there is a commonness amongst us and us cooperating, knowing each other, interacting with each other, working with each other is something that serves me self selfishly, but yeah. even beyond just my own self identity uh, being served, that you know there is a certain camaraderie of you know fr fraternity of you know people on my block at the most basic, or even before I even get into my block, just my my wife, my kids, you know, yeah. like us interacting and yep. knowing my neighbors makes this place uh, more 
you know, amenable, healthier place for my kids to engage in, and you know, all of these other tentacles that evolve out of it, whether it be storefronts or parks or gardens or green space or trees or whatever, are just outgrowths of this natural, just uh, I don't know, evolution of, of congeniality. Maybe that's the thing, but I think more than anything, it's just people being desirous of a healthier space to live. Yeah, you know, um, Saul Alinsky, the great community organizer, you know, he wrote very negatively about altruism mm -hmm. as a motivation for activism. He said, like, look, self-interest is what sustains you over the long term, not altruism. And so the question of, you know, what's going to be good for, you know, us and ours mm -hmm. is a much more powerful driver than the question of what's going to be good for them and theirs. Um, so you have to have a lot of skin in the game also. Um, it's very easy for someone like me who's an architect to like fly somewhere, give people advice and then like leave. <laughs> you know, it's a very, very easy thing to do and we do it all the time. People pay us weirdly enough to do that. Um, but it, you know, it, when you have skin in the game, Right when you have to like go somewhere, right? Just propose something and then stay, <laughs> and like see it through and live with the indications. It's another. It's another thing. But if you if you have some belief that you're gonna reap the benefits, mm -hmm. and other people as well, but you along with them, I think that's when we see amazing things right. happening. Right. That's when we see special things happening. The redefinition of us, like or we, or what is how to define our. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a good place to end. Thank you all so much for your time, uh, and I really appreciate you sitting down and having this conversation today. Hey folks, we have some extra added bonus material for you today from the listening sessions and discussions that were happening at the ICA with our panel guests. So stick around and enjoy listening to that. Started out as a real commission. And I'm going to kind of move me forward in time to where it becomes more speculative in the ways that you saw in the early, in the first project. So um, I was actually hired by an organization called Washington Park Consortium, a small community development uh, corporation, as a consultant to make a project that could supplement the work that um, the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning, the city, and um, LISC, the, lo the local initiative support corporation, were doing in terms of a larger study for the south side of Chicago. Um, the neighborhood we're focusing on is called Washington Park. Just to give you some context, here's the boundary of Chicago. Um, the neighborhood actually exists right along what's called the Emerald Necklace of the city. So this is a park net network that's thrown together by boulevards, Chicago's uh, beautiful waterfront there. Um, so it's down here on the south side with reasonable good downtown. And um, one of the most important things to understand about this neighborhood is that it actually grew out of a park of the same name. The park was actually there first, and the original design was by uh, the uh, landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted, who famously designed Central Parks and many other important landscape spaces around America. It would surprise me if somewhere here in Richmond there's an Olmsted park, because there's one in just about every other city, maybe not. Um, and it's also famously connected to Jackson Park, which is the grounds of the world's 
uh, Columbian Exposition. It was kind of artificial Eden, a place that people retreated to from the rapid and violent early expansion of the industrial city. So this is what it looked like in its early years, right? Circa 1910, the neighborhood is six miles directly south of downtown Chicago, which back in that day was a long way away. Um, it was a so-called early suburb, eventually annexed, and it was one of the first neighborhoods that Chicagoans, especially wealthy Chicagoans, escaped to from the kind of congestion um, that existed at the time. And so this project that I'm showing you is asking a question, can we return to this idea? Um, we were having a discussion yesterday about the sites we're talking about, and I was making some kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to challenge people on, uh, on you know, the, the kind of way they're describing the, the place, because it reminded me so much of places I had seen before, like this neighborhood of Washington Park. So in the early 1900s, the, the neighborhood starts out being populated by um, German uh, and other European immigrants, and then eventually, uh, in a very short period of time, it becomes almost entirely African-American for a couple of reasons. You have the great migration of Americans, of African-Americans from the South, coupled together with restrictive covenants in the city, which meant that there were only certain neighborhoods they could move into. So the combination of those two forces uh, actually drove the population way, way up to densities higher than one can, almost, can find, almost higher than anywhere else in Chicago today. So like 30,000 people per square mile. Um, you, uh, so it resulted, in many cases, in a very intense overcrowding. So it was an image um, by the photographer Wayne Miller called the Tenement on South Indiana Avenue. On the other hand, it was also a very vibrant neighborhood. There were famous jazz clubs, famous what they call, um, uh, well, famous clubs that were actually integrated, where you actually saw black and white people mix, mixing and enjoying the music of famous musicians like uh, Izzy Gillespie and, and others. Then, along comes urban renewal, the highway, the public housing, stories we all know, right? So Robert Taylor Homes, uh, one of the largest public housing projects in the world, not just in the city, but in the world, uh, was basically, uh, about half of it exists within the boundaries of Washington Park, and that site is still there today being rebuilt. Now, what's peculiar and maybe what's different is that my understanding is that the population of your city is growing. The population of Chicago, like many so-called Rust Belt cities, has been stagnant or in some cases even declining, and it's also been uneven in that decline. So in neighborhoods like Washington Park, what you see is suddenly in 1970, the population starts to drop off uh, sharply. And people have different theories why. Uh, my uh, favorite theory is that sometime <coughs> in 1968, you get the Fair Housing Act, and what happened is that um, basically uh, people in that neighborhood um, who had the means, so African Americans in that neighborhood who had the means, started to leave. They did what everyone else does. They started to go places where they could find uh, better housing, better jobs, schools, etc. This isn't white flight because there were no white people left in the neighborhood at that time. This is all black flight. So this is what the neighborhood looked like from the air around 2012 when I started the project. Um, like images you've seen of Detroit or maybe even parts of your city, uh, it's very green. And so, um, like an old punch card, formerly solid urban fabric has been highly perforated, full of green holes, um, much like 
conditions we've seen in Youngstown, other places around the country. Um, 7,900 people per square mile was the density at that time. I think it's gone slightly since then. The question is, what does that number mean? Is that too much? Is it too little? And one of the things I want us to maybe think about today is how we get beyond um, focus on the quantitative and move back towards the qualitative aspects of urbanism. In our neoliberal era, many of us have kind of absorbed this notion of thinking about almost everything in our lives from the point of view of quantities. But as an architect, I'm mostly interested in the question of qualities. And I'll show you why. If we start to do a comparison between Washington Park and other so-called suburbs, um, or early suburbs of a similar, sim similar vintage, some of which are now still outside of city limits. So places like Riverside, Illinois, or Oak Park, equal distance to downtown, Let's compare them. And the reason I choose those is because they also have kind of interesting and important uh, design, urban planning and design history. Riverside is actually one of the first uh, planned American suburbs. Started way back in 1863, before automobiles, before highways, before all this other stuff. People say created suburbs. Uh, Olmsted was already planning one in 1863. If you haven't been there, next time you go to Chicago, definitely visit. It's an amazing place. Um, and then Oak Park, this is not an image of Oak Park, this is an image of Franklin Rice Broadway for City, but one could say in many ways it was inspired by Oak Park. And Oak Park is of course the place where you find um, many of Franklin Wright's uh, masterpieces, his homes, his studio, etc. Um, both of these places are interesting though because both of them are kind of desirable places to live. It's like this, they're like the neighborhoods where you leave to that you would kind of relocate to once you get old enough to have a couple of kids, you decide that Chicago public schools aren't working for you, and you're, uh, you have a relatively um, reasonable need, you would move to Oak Park or Riverside or someplace like that. They're kind of inner suburbs uh, of choice. And what's interesting is then you start to compare, though, these numbers. Riverside is a density of about 4,400 people per square mile. Oak Park has something like 11,000. Washington Park rests squarely in between. What does this tell us, simply though? In matters of urbanism, one should not confuse quality with quantity. Both of those other places are places where you have decent schools, right? You have walkability, you have tra access to transit, um, you have good housing stock, you have grocery stores, you have all the things that people claim to say that they want. You have reasonably uh, low crime, they, uh, they work. So the question is, what are the real uh, issues? Well, this is a big one, I think. Matters of perception. Um, I've heard a lot in the past uh, 24 hours, a lot of talk about uh, vacant lands, vacant buildings, vacancy. And maybe this is one of the most uh, important pieces of, if I could dare give advice, unsolicited advice, while I'm here, piece of advice I can give. We need to get away from this language of vacancy. There are no such thing as vacant lots. First of all, it's technically incorrect. Right? When you go to a building, even though no one's living there, right? or when you go to a lot, even though there's no longer a building there, it's certainly not vacant. There are things there. You just have to look. Right? There is soil. There are plants. Uh, there are you know, leftovers behind what may have been there before. There are bugs. There are rabbits. There are all kinds of things. You just have to look. 
The other problem is, is that, and this is even worse, is that vacancy, as far as I'm concerned, is a kind of slur that we use in urbanism. It's kind of label that we put onto certain spaces, certain landscapes, which does nothing to help them and does everything to marginalize them. So if we talk about the vacant lot, automatically it takes in a space of pessimism. We think about uselessness, we think about loss, we think about blight, we think about crime, we think about trash, we think about uncut grass, we think about all, you know, broken glass, we think about violence, we think about poverty. Right? So then once that framework is entered in your mind, it's very hard, hard to begin to think about investing in a space like that. So what we tried to propose, or what I tried to propose in this project, was that we shift our language. We no longer talk about vacant land, vacant lots, but we start to talk about available land or available property. Because when you go out to the so-called suburbs, for example, nobody talks about vacant lots. Right? We talk about available property. So it's a simple shift which takes you from a space of pessimism to a space of optimism. Things no longer become useful, useless, they become desirable. We go from loss to think about potential. We go from life to think about value. So this, I think, is a really, really important uh, conceptual shift, and also a shift in our language, the way that we talk and think about these spaces. So hopefully that's helpful. But back to the proposal. So then that affects every way that we read the neighborhood. So we call this the opportunity map. This is a map of all of the available land in Washington Park. There's a lot of it. It's actually about all of these little white patches add up to about half the size of the existing park, um, about 151 acres. We call that an opportunity map. This is an ownership map. The takeaway from this is that uh, everything in red is city owned. That's almost 100 acres of land. And that's 23% of all of the developable land in the neighborhood. And it's more than half of what's available there. So what we're seeing here is 100 acres of technically public space scattered haphazardly throughout the neighborhood. This map looks at every block and ranks them according to the amount of available land. So this is like the relative amount of opportunity. So what you can also start to see is that some of the blocks are actually completely intact still in terms of being completely built out. Whereas others, you know, like this is where the Robert Taylor Homes used to be, this is shortly after demolition, are nearly completely open. And then there are all of these gradients in between. So that's very important to understand that the amount of denensification, the amount of openness, is actually not even, it's not consistent. So that means that we can't come up with a kind of broad brush approach for the neighborhood. You need to deal with issues locally. So finding the right scale of operation is really important. And then finally, this is a map of the shortcuts people have been taking through the blocks. Right? I think these are very interesting. Why? Because it takes a lot of people crossing through these blocks uh, over a long period of time, repeatedly, in order to make these things visible from outer space, which is how I see them as an architect. I'm seeing them from, some, from satellite photos. So I don't see them as something negative. I see them as signs of emerging collective intelligence. There's a new pattern, there's a new urban structure, uh, a new urban geography emerging in the neighborhood. I also think it's interesting because it looks like the existing park is extending tentacles into the neighborhood. This is good. So, 
How does the proposal work? What do we propose? It's very simple. We imagine, what if 20, 30, 40 years from now, we can hold the population steady? After decades of decline, no growth in population, no decline in population, just hold it steady. We just keep the people there, kind of freeze the neighborhood place. Even that would be terribly optimistic after, you know, 50, 60 years of decline. So we begin to think about that. If we can just do something for the people that are there and the buildings that are there and everything that's there. We do simply then is start to bundle the existing building stock, draw new boundaries around it, create these new uh, groupings, and attempt to capture this emergent patterns of urbanization, which both relate to, again, the shortcuts in red, so that's what all these little red marks are, but also kind of opening of the landscape. These I call by different names. Sometimes I call them superplots, as of late I started to call them micro-regions. Um, basically what they are, are they landscapes of cooperative independence. So they're new social and spatial collectives, kind of miniature subdivisions, if you can imagine that. So the idea is that they would be managed and maintained um, through homeowners associations or land trusts, for example, and that it would become a new way of spatializing the kind of um, the, the new shape of the neighborhood, creating a new spatial perception of the neighborhood that gets beyond you know, vacancy or abandonment, etc. While also creating a new kind of scale of collectivity, like searching for a new scale of collectivity. Trying to understand, like in the American city, right, how you have a new scale of collectivity. Maybe it can't be the whole neighborhood, but also it's not working right now when you have one homeowner taking care of an increasing amount of land, right, as they get older, uh, etc. So it's the idea that these bundles of 